a liqueur made by monks, an Italian liqueur called Genzina, and bottles showing up on your table unannounced. This week, some of our favorite distilled and infused spirits. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore foodie culture around the world, and this week it's all about liqueurs. Now, I think I may have said last week that this week would be about beer, but nope, we're upping the alcohol content this week. It's about liqueurs as we revisit some of my favorite conversations about drinks like cachaça in Rio, gin in London, and vermouth in Madrid. And I'll tell you, the last few weeks post-vax, I've been really jonesing to do some traveling. We've been doing some little local trips, and we've got a huge trip planned for later this fall that I'll tell you about when we get closer to that. But I did just get back from a family gathering in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, I haven't been to Nebraska in over 20 years, but Omaha... It's changed quite a bit since then. Um, We didn't stay long enough to really do a deep dive, but a couple of things about Omaha stuck out to me. First of all, the locals, they're really proud of their town, and they should be. I mean, wherever you live, you should be proud of the place where you live, and you should be working to make it a better place. But the other thing is that the city itself, the downtown area, has so many former factories, mills, and warehouses that were abandoned long ago post-industrialization, and they've been doing a good job of repurposing them as retail and living spaces. But the thing that struck me was how gorgeous these buildings are from the first half of the 20th century. Brick facades with arches and window head decorations, it's all quite striking. I'm glad they're trying to preserve these buildings because they really are quite beautiful. The other thing was when we arrived at our Airbnb, we had to park on the street. There was no garage. So I'm unloading the luggage and some random guy approached us and started asking us questions. And at one point, completely out of the blue, he said, hey, you guys have any tranquilizer darts? And I swear to you, that's exactly how it happened, just completely randomly. Do you guys have any tranquilizer darts? Anyway, for the rest of the weekend, we had the perfect catchphrase to use at random times. Do you have any tranquilizer darts? Okay, let's get back to the issue at hand, liqueurs. Tom LeMessurier is a British expat, but he lives in Rio now. His company, Eat Rio, is back giving food tours after the pandemic, and he talks to me about a local drink called cachaça. So cachaça is the fermented distilled uh, juice of sugarcane. Brazil grows more sugarcane than the next six countries combined, so it's way out world leader, and they do a lot of things with it. They they turn it into ethanol, which uh, goes into their cars here. Uh, They also use actually just the sugarcane juice itself as a brilliant hangover cure, so that's actually often very useful uh, knowledge for people coming here on holiday. Um, But yeah, cachaça is essentially like a sort of cousin of rum. Um, It's traditionally was pretty rough. It was kind of almost like a sort of moonshine thing. And even today, if you've got like a 
a friend who's got like an uncle who lives in the countryside or something, when he comes to visit, he usually brings a couple of rather dubious looking unmarked bottles <laughs> of spirit. Um, <laughs> I always think it's usually pretty good, but uh, you normally feel it the next day. Right. Um, but what's been really nice actually is again, I think over the last sort of 20, 30 years, uh, people are starting to use sort of various different aging techniques. Um, so one of one of the uh, cachaças I really like is actually made in the state of Rio. It's called Magnifica. They make various different versions of their of cachaça, but uh, one of the most delicious is a 12-year aged cachaça, which is aged in oak barrels, which they actually buy from Jack Daniels, um, okay. which is it's really it's a special spirit this is one that you would happily drink just sipping it itself and enjoying all the uh, the aromas that it gives off um but what's also again really nice is that we're starting to see a lot of places using different brazilian woods so woods which are only native to brazil which are only found in brazil they're using those to make barrels and all different woods that they're using are imparting sort of different nuanced uh, aromas and flavors which i think is really nice and what would be a cocktail that we'd get with the cachaça? So, so the classic cachaça cocktail is caipirinha. Uh, caipirinha looks like, uh, again, that's another one that people have trouble with. Uh, I have a lot of people asking if we're going to drink Cipriani's. Uh, so caipirinha, caipirinha uh, is the national cocktail here. It's, it's a pretty simple affair. Basically, uh, traditionally, it would be made with lime. Um, when you get here, a lot of people are surprised to find actually they make caipirinhas with all kinds of other fruits, which adds another nice dimension. Um, but traditionally, lime, sugar, cachaça, and ice. That is it. And I can tell you from my my first few days experience, I had had two caipirinhas in my life made back in London. And they're pretty much, you know, they use two shots of, uh, of spirits. So, you know, you can drink a few of them and feel like you've had a few gin and tonics or, you know, rum and cokes or whatever your drink is. Uh, I got to Rio and I was very excited to be here. And I think I had about five or six. <laughs> and uh, wow, I woke up the next afternoon asking what happened. You know, it's uh, here they free pour usually and they're they're pretty generous. So it's uh, it's it's a hell of a drink. And um, it's very, very refreshing. And if it's well made, you know, you can drink two or three. And it's only really when you stand up, you'll suddenly go, oh, yes, I've had a drink. Um, so it's actually really, really delicious. But uh, it's definitely good to, you know, pause between drinks just to let it all work into your system if you don't want to have to be put in a cab back to the hotel. Right, right. And they also make a drink called the uh, Batita. How is that different? It uses the same spirit, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, uh, bachida uh, kind of literally means... Bachida. Yeah, T-I has a ch sound. It's uh, just another one of the little things you have to learn here. But uh, batida, they'll understand. But uh, generally, we would say bachida, which means beaten. And uh, in very sort of rustic places, it tends to be basically a third cachaça, a third some kind of fruit juice, usually uh, passion fruit or coconut. Those are really popular ones. And about a third condensed milk. And it will be served in like a little shot glass, and it's sweet, quite potent. But you know the heaviness of the uh, the condensed milk makes it, you know, you have one, you're like, okay, I think I'll take a break. Um, now this will be a real top tip for anyone who's interested in trying something a bit different. Um, there is uh, a really great little bar in a neighborhood called Praça da Bandeira. This is a little bit off the beaten track, and the bar is called Nu. N-O-O. Uh, it specializes actually in cachaça. They have over 200 different cachaças, oh, but wow. they also make about 
they make about 15 different bachidas. And what's really nice for me is that one, they make it without the condensed milk. So it doesn't have that sort of heavy, sickly quality, but also they use amazing fruits. I mean, Brazil, you can't talk about Brazilian cuisine without talking about the incredible variety and also quality of fruits. I mean, there are fruits here I'd never even heard of. They don't often, they don't even have names in English and they often don't make it out of Brazil. That might be because they don't transport well or for some other reason, but right. they use fruits with names like mangaba, cupuaçu, um, what has it got? Graviola. Uh, these amazing fruits. For me, this was a voyage of discovery when I got to Brazil just to sort of discover all these incredible flavors, but they use these in their bachidas and it's actually the only place I know that does that. Uh, and it's actually really amazing. They'll serve them in sort of groups of six so you can order six different varieties and it comes in a really nice little serving uh, sort of palette almost looks like an artist's palette and uh, you sit there and sip away uh, on these different flavors and that's a that's a really that's a really lovely experience that rick kempfer is a fellow podcaster on the radio misfits podcast network his show minutia men with dave stern is very very funny and rick was on my show to talk about visiting rovine croatia now a bit of background. Rick and I are old friends from our college days, and when he told me about going to Croatia, I recommended a couple of spots for him, including what's probably my favorite restaurant in the whole country. But the thing that I like most about the grappa and the rakia in Croatia is that you go into a restaurant, and at the end of the meal, an unlabeled bottle just appears <laughs> on your table, and you're like didn't order it don't, and, and i don't know what it is because there's no label on it but it ain't water well we went to you know we probably talk about this in a bit but we went to the restaurant that you recommended to us and at the end of the meal they gave us four bottles because no you had six people it. yes <laughs> no, yes exactly and and uh each of them had different flavors and different colors like there was an orange one right. and, a, and, and so of course we had to try them all uh, but they just left us the bottles, and they just charged us one charge. Right. If we had had only one sip, it would have been the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you might as well drink it. So, yeah, you're paying for it. <laughs> Gin has been enjoying renewed interest in the last few years. I spoke with Londoner David Cotter from Secret Food Tours, and we talked about his gin tour in the city. There's so many good venues around London. Obviously, you've got places like Soho which, uh, you know, have cocktail bars in abundance, which uh, have always had a really good selection of gins. You know, uh, you've got your, your classic London dry gins, but also uh, we're starting to see more of the old styles of old Tom gins coming about. And there's also other countries which are starting to produce gin as well, uh, which is really interesting. My favorite gin, funnily enough, uh, sorry, uh, sorry to say this about London, but uh, my favorite gin is actually distilled in Germany. It's a, <laughs> it's a gin called Monkey 47. But uh, <laughs> I, kind of, I love the name already. <laughs> exactly. Monkey 47. It's got 47 botanicals on it. But to, uh, to bring it sort of back to the London scene, uh, the reason I can kind of claim it as a London gin is because they make it in the style of London dry. So uh, it's still technically London, I think. But uh, <laughs> uh, that's there. That's a, that's a fantastic gin. But on the the gin tour uh, that we do. We actually start off uh, around the area of London Bridge, which is, you know, the heart of the city. You've got uh, the, the actual city of London where you've got the Gherkin, the walkie-talkie, just a stone's throw across the River Thames. Um, you've got Tower Bridge and London Bridge 
you know, either side of you, Borough Market just up the road, the Shard looking over you. Uh, but yeah, we start it around there, which is great. And we go down a, a street called Bermondsey Street, which uh, is may, may not be sort of uh, immediately recognizable, particularly for tourists, but it's uh, uh, Bermondsey has a great history about it for a long time. Uh, it was nicknamed London's Larder because uh, we used to keep so many different uh, spices and teas and herbs in all the wharves and warehouses uh, that they had down there. Um, but it's got a really great scene for uh, for bars. Uh, they actually have, uh, moving slightly away from Geneva, a great road in Bermondsey called the Bermondsey Beer Mile, uh, where they've got you know loads and loads of loads of great pubs that do. Uh, a fantastic selection of uh, craft beers, uh, great lagers, IPAs. Uh, but on the gin tour that we do, uh, we we like to I'm sort of yeah going back to mixing it up a bit. We go to a lovely cocktail bar to start, and uh, we start off with like a really refreshing, uh, uh, refreshing classic gin-based cocktail. Uh, then we go to a place which uh, uh, they. Their motto is they choose to infuse, uh, and that was by their head barman who nicknames himself the Gin Engineer. It's uh, <laughs> a pr- pretty good name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to see myself as a bit of a gin engineer sometimes, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, they uh, they play around with some really great infusions. Um, some you know more familiar, uh, sort of sweet, floral, fruity. Uh, but they also, what I think is really fun and interesting, they play around with uh, some uh, really, really great uh, savory uh, and sort of slightly more interesting uh, infusions as well. So, yeah, that's Tanner & Co. They're a fantastic bar. But uh, I think the the highlight or, you know, sort of it's hard to choose, but the highlight of our gin tour would have to be our final venue uh, only because um, – for us on the, the drink tours in particular, uh, there has to be a sense of seeing how the actual spirit or beer is being made. Uh, it kind of adds so much more to the tour uh, rather than just going to, you know, four or five different bars. Uh, and the last venue that we've got is a fantastic Italian sustainable uh, street market called Mercato Metropolitano. Uh, and they they have some beautiful types of street food in there. Uh, but when you go in, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. You've got uh, all the botanicals for the gin growing around. So it's actually, okay. uh, yeah, they've got a double use for it. You know, obviously they use these botanicals, but also it just makes the place look vibrant, smell amazing. And uh, it's really, really, really cool. They have their own microbrewery in there. Uh, but what's more important for us is they have their own craft distillery. Uh, and it's uh, at their gym and tonic bar and actually uh, distill and make three gins uh, on that site. And we're lucky enough to uh, get them to give us a nice a nice talk about their process of making the gin, uh, what they use. And then they actually give us a tasting of all three of their uh, their gins that they distill on site. So uh, that that's incredibly special. But to me, also, it's incredibly important to have uh, on uh, on a drinks tour because Without that, you are just going to uh, some bars. One of my favorite food tours was in Madrid with Devour Tours, and I spoke with Devour's co-founder, Lauren Alois, about that tour, specifically about the vermouth culture of Madrid. 
Vermouth is a revelation for a lot of people who come to visit Spain because either they've never had it on its own or they maybe have or they've had it, had it in cocktails, but it's often an Italian brand of vermouth. It's usually martini and it just tastes nothing like what we're talking about here in Spain. So vermouth is a, a fortified white wine, although we call it red vermouth, um, the one that you'll usually find here. And that's because it's been colored with caramel and also infused with all sorts of herbs, botanicals, um, even roots, cinnamon, spices. Every vermouth maker has their own recipe and it could have a hundred ingredients. So they're, they're all pretty secretive about it. But these, these fortified wines have about 15% alcohol and they are sweet, which a lot of people again are like, Oh, I don't like sweet wine. It's not my, it's not my thing, but it's not overbearingly sweet because of all of the bitterness of these herbs and things that they put into the recipe. So it goes down real easy. They serve it cold and it really opens your appetite as that aperitif drink, which we do here around one o'clock in the afternoon or around 7.30, 8, 8.30 at night. So before lunch or before dinner, you have one, maybe two vermouths. You might want a third, but don't do it. It's like always bad. It's always a bad choice. Um, so <laughs> that's good. Good tip. Um, so where is vermouth made in Spain? In the north? So it originally comes from Catalonia in Spain, so oh. from the region that Barcelona's in. And that's because the, the story of vermouth, um, it it kind of passed across the border into Spain through Italy. So martini and all the Italian vermouths were first, but they're not better, <laughs> is what I like to say. <laughs> um, they're just very different. The taste profile is completely different. And so crossed into Catalonia, people took um, the, the liberty to kind of change the recipes. And there's an area outside of Barcelona called a town called Reus, which is very famous for vermouth. And so there's a lot of Catalan brands of vermouth. Some of my favorites are from Catalonia. But because vermouth over the past five years in Spain has had a bit of a resurgence, it used to be a bit of a an old man's drink or something that, you know, your aunties would drink here right. in Spain. But over the past five years, it became really, really trendy among uh, the younger generations. And so having a vermouth in, in Catalan, there's actually a, a verb called doing vermouth, which means going out for drinks before lunch. And you don't necessarily have to order vermouth, but that's what they call that whole act of going out um, for drinks is doing the vermouth. And so you, you have a lot of great ones from Catalonia, but nowadays you'll find vermouth from uh, even the Sherry Triangle. A lot of those bodegas are producing a vermouth. In Madrid, we have different brands of vermouths from different wineries. And in the north of Spain, where you normally find a lot of those fruity or white wines, a lot of um, wineries have started to produce a, a vermouth using those wines as the base white wine for the, the, um, the vermouth, which make them also really interesting. Giancarlo Yanota is an American filmmaker with Italian roots who made the charming movie My Country. We talked about a liqueur which I'd never heard of called Genzina. The Genziana is it's a beautiful purple flower that grows in the Abruzzo Mountains. So Molise used to be called Abruzzo and it factioned off 70, 80 years ago. And, but we still hold a lot of the Abruzzese traditions. And the Genziana, again, is a plant that they extru, uh, extract the root of the plant. They climb up this mountain, you know, at certain times of year. They bring the dogs out to kind of sniff them out. 
And they make this alcohol with, you know, a little bit of white wine and sugar and, and um, you know, ferment it, ferment it. And it is my favorite after dinner drink. You know, people are more familiar with limoncello or amato. Um, but for me, the Genziana, which is very, very strong. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It is, you know, as we say, the first is the worst. Second, a little better, and the third is paradiso. By the third, if you're not hit with it, you'll never be hit, you know, by it. Um, so unfortunately, that gnocchi seemed like it just went on and on, and we had to cut it back. I mean, it was it was like I think a 12 or 15 minute scene in the first cut, and we we trimmed it to about five minutes. So there was a part in the movie where we had a Genziana toast. But we cut it out and um, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. And, and later, you know, we were talking about it um, in different scenes in the movie. But um, the people from Molise obviously got a real kick out of it. And, uh, you know, people who are familiar with it. But they don't sell it in the States. Like they don't sell it here. You got to bring it back from Italy, the Genziana. But uh, it's my favorite. And um, and uh, I try everybody. I, you know, I know like I always try to, you know, if I'm going to a party or something, I'll always bring the Genziana. It's kind of a fun, you know, fun little icebreaker kind of a thing. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> right, right. Now, do you drink it straight or do you ever mix it with something else? No, we never mix it and you and you drink it, you sip it. You don't really down it, you know, like you would maybe another shot. Um, I guess it could be compared to like Malort, which is a local Chicago um, drink. It's very earthy, I guess. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely not for everybody, but, and I didn't care for it either. When I first started drinking it, I kind of had to build a tolerance to it. But, um, again, if you like a little more bitter, it's a bitter after dinner drink. Um, you know, it's earthy. I, I can't get enough. I've got three bottles in, in my, in my fridge at home. Uh, I brought it to weddings before. My brother was getting married in November. We're going to bring it to his wedding without a doubt. So, <laughs> Sinjavirja is a liqueur made by monks in Santo Tirso, Portugal, using a secret recipe. And my friend Andre Apolinario of Taste Porto told me about it. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, you know, it's quite unique uh, still today. Uh, a liqueur being prepared in a monastery, a Benedictine monastery uh, in a small village close to Porto. One of those echoes from, from the past. Um, still made nowadays by monks. It's a double distillation beverage with spices, aromatic herbs, uh, bound to be balsamic to you. It comes with 30% in alcohol content, so it's also a bit of a kick, I would say. <laughs> But it's actually with those uh, spices and aromatic herbs, it's somehow smooth to go along. It's almost like go having a dessert and then just a tiny wee bit of that to go with a dessert. It's just fabulous. Helps with digestion, I would say. From what I was reading, they're still growing the botanicals at the monastery that they infuse. And the monks, they hold on. They're the only ones who make it. It's not like they're uh, parceling it out to a third party here. They're actually making it. So the recipe is rather uh, held close. You know, not a lot of people know how to make this. Just the few monks yeah. that are there. Yeah, just the monks, really. They. It's not a recipe that they've shared with people outside of the monastery. 
uh, they're the the ones preparing it. Um, if you want to buy, uh, you have to ask them uh, if they can match up the production. They're not a. This is not a mass production. They're not. They they don't have a a unit, a huge unit with lots of people working in. No, it's still today uh, made by those monks. It's the end result of years of years of perfecting uh, the selection of botanicals that is used in that beverage and definitely a secret of their own as well. Okay, there you go. Some quality ideas for your 4th of July celebration. And if you want to listen to the full episodes from any of our guests this week, check out the show notes. You can get that at radiomisfits.com slash DED135. And speaking of the 4th of July, I just wrote a piece about the unique and wacky 4th of July parade in Chapachet, Rhode Island. It's called the Ancient and Horribles Parade. I love off-the-wall DIY events like this, and you can read about it and see pics at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and head distiller brother Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. And do you have any tranquilizer darts? Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.